You're in Second Corinthians chapter 7. Adam read the passage for us. But before I read it, I do want to just um, give a greeting to, to Harold. Pastor Keith prayed for him. Harold, we love you, and we're thankful that you're making progress. I'm also thankful that Pastor Keith is back, and no doubt next week we'll, in our God at Work time, get some update on the wonderful way that God blessed the conference in Columbia. But I also send greetings to Pastor Jonathan and Tina and grandsons, and to Tina's parents, the Thomases, Nancy Bloor, and anyone else who's watching by way of live stream. This is the fourth and last sermon in the series called Growing in Godliness. I've entitled it, How About a Complete Self-Cleanse? Question mark. Body and spirit. There's a lot of emphasis these days on doing a cleanse, and, and I'm sure that those cleanses are very helpful. I'm more mindful of that now than I've ever been, removing toxins from the body. Paul wants to talk to us about a different kind of cleanse, a spiritual cleanse, but one that is universal in its scope, the entirety of our humanity. And the interesting thing is this cleanse is a self-cleanse. So it is the desire of your pastors that individually and corporately we become a more godly church. In preparing for this message, I read this quote from Spurgeon who said, An unholy church is of no use to the world and of no esteem among men. Oh, it is an abomination, hell's laughter, heaven's abhorrence. And the larger the church, the more influential, the worst nuisance does it become when it becomes dead and unholy. The worst evils... which have ever come upon the world, have been brought on her by an unholy church. And so I reiterate it is the desires of your pastors that all of us individually and corporately make progress in holiness so that the end result will be that each of us is actually growing in holiness and this church is growing in holiness. That's our desire. But more importantly... And I must stress, this is the desire of God himself, who cares about our desire. I'm glad we have that desire. But the most important thing is this is what God desires. It's something that he has actually built into our salvation. It's something he has actually determined to take place in our lives. It's something that he has actually predestined. Remember, Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. If we are saved, excuse me, individually and corporately, we have been predestined, predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. And that isn't something God is just going to do when Jesus comes back or when we die. It's like God isn't up in heaven saying, well, I would love to see them become progressively conformed to the image of my blessed Son, but I'm not going to do anything about that. I'm not going to build that into my plan of salvation. I'll just take care of that when they die or when my Son comes back. No. He has determined that from the moment of our conversion, the process of becoming conformed to the moral image of his son begins. So it is fair to say that this, in fact, is our Father's ultimate goal in salvation. If we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, God's ultimate goal is to make us just like 
Jesus Christ. As godly as Jesus Christ. Do you know that someday you will be as godly as Jesus Christ? That almost sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? Sounds like I'm belittling the godliness of Jesus Christ. But do you think God is going to allow us to be somewhat sinful throughout eternity? No. He's going to make us perfect in terms of our moral conformity to Jesus and in terms of our righteousness. So we're headed for perfect godliness. Now, what I want to do this morning is to jump immediately into my primary text, which is verse 1, and draw your attention to what I'm going to call the personal responsibility that each one of us has, each one of us, that is, who who professes to be a Christian, if we are truly a Christian, the personal responsibility that each of us has to make ourselves more godly. That doesn't sound right either, but I'm going to say it again. This text teaches us that we have a personal responsibility to make ourselves more godly. Our series is entitled Growing in Godliness. And so I'm going to draw your attention to Paul's inspired, authoritative assertion that each one of us has a personal duty to do two things. To cleanse ourselves from all defilement and to bring our holiness to completion. Now, I'm just going to keep saying this until you're persuaded it's in the text. Paul is saying in verse 1 that each of us has a personal responsibility to cleanse ourselves. And he doesn't feel the need to say, of course, by the help of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have to quickly qualify that. That's not what he wants us to feel. He he doesn't want us to feel right now the divine enablement. He wants us to feel the personal obligation or responsibility. We are to cleanse ourselves, notice, from every defilement. This is a universal cleansing with regard to our humanity. And he wants us, can you believe it, to complete the work of holiness. He wants us to complete the work of holiness. If words mean anything, that's what verse 1 is teaching. So, as shocking as it may sound, we have a responsibility to sanctify ourselves. That's what this text teaches. Now, let me pause and do a little theology, just some big-picture theology for a few moments. I want to get up at about 35,000 feet here and look way down. And I want you to just remember that in a very simple way, we could put it like this. God the Father planned salvation in eternity. That plan is called election. God the Son purchased our salvation in history. That's called the atonement. And God the Holy Spirit applies that salvation in time. It begins with the new birth. So you have the planning of the Father, the purchase of the Son, the application of the Holy Spirit. That's a big picture view of salvation. It's a good grid for all of us to remember and think of frequently. But now let me just uh, broaden that out a little bit. We could put it like this. There's a Latin expression that theologians use. It's called the ordo salutis. It just means the order of salvation in in terms of its logical unfolding. Uh, Obviously, it begins with election, and it goes on to effectual calling and regeneration and the new birth and faith and repentance and justification and sanctification and perseverance and ultimately glorification. But Let's not be that complex. Let's just put it like this. Let's look at it from the standpoint of the first thing that God actually does in our, does in our life is causes us to be born again or converted. And then, at that very moment, he begins the process of sanctification. What is sanctification? It's just a big theological term that means 
God setting us apart to himself, apart from the former life of sin and evil and wickedness, apart from this world system and its values. And he has separated us from that to himself to be a, a holy people. So sanctification etymologically, that is in terms of the actual word, simply means to be set apart. But it means more than that. It means to begin the process of becoming like God. We'll never be like God in terms of his incommunicable attributes. We'll never be omnipresent. We'll never be omniscient. We'll never be omnipotent. We'll never be eternal in the sense that we never had a beginning, but in terms of the attributes that he wants to communicate to us, he begins the process of making him like himself. And he gives us truth, and he gives us wisdom, and he gives us a sense of justice, and he gives us a sense of mercy and compassion, and he's conforming us to the image of his Son. So when it comes then to just this thing called sanctification, the process of God making us like his son, we should think of it this way. Sanctification begun, sanctification continued, sanctification completed. Okay, is everybody with me on this? The process of separating us from sin begun, the process of getting more and more sin out of us and helping us to become more and more like Jesus Continues, the process is completed the second we die or the second the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. So there is such a thing as initial sanctification. It happens when we got saved, when we were born again. There's a sense in which you and I were sanctified, and the Bible even uses that word in the past tense concerning what happened to us when we were saved, when we got born again. And I just want to show you that really quickly. Turn, if you will, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And just notice how Paul uses this word in verse 2, 1 Corinthians 1, 2. Or if you like, you, you may just listen or make note of it. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. To those sanctified. Hey, Paul, you're saying that some of us are already sanctified. And he says, you bet your life. You have been initially radically set apart from your former life of sin and allegiance to this world. You've been radically changed. I have separated you unto myself. And then when you come over to chapter 6 and verse 11, you see a similar usage of that word. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, past tense. Now, this is a work of God and a work of God alone. You know how much participation you had in that initial sanctification? Zero. And to use another theological term, I'm not trying to be too theological, but some of you uh, benefit from these words because you, you read and you're trying to go deeper. It's called monergism. It's the work of one. When it comes to our regeneration, God acts monergistically. He is the only one. We had nothing to do with our regeneration. We didn't participate in our regeneration. We were acted upon. We're like a patient who's been put to sleep and is ready for surgery, and the doctor begins to open him up. He's entirely passive. When we were first regenerated, we were entirely passive. It wasn't our faith that caused us to be born again. It was our being born again that caused us to believe and to repent. So God alone acts monergistically in our initial sanctification. But from that point on, through the rest of our Christian lives, there's this wonderful working together. Uh, to use the other word, it's, there's a synergism. There's two parties working together. One is, of course, the cause, and the other one responds. But the response is a real activity on our part. And so 
we are involved in our sanctification. Jesus said in John 17, 17 in his prayer, Father, sanctify them through your truth, through the truth. Your word is the truth. The word of God is a means of sanctification. And Jesus was praying for the ongoing, progressive sanctification of his disciples through the word of God. It is an, it is an instrument. The Holy Spirit is the agent, but, and God is the agent, but the, the word of God is an instrument. And so there is this progressive sanctification that goes on in our lives, which is interestingly the work of God and the work of us together. But it's not like a 50-50 thing. It's not like we both do the same thing and we're just working together to carry something. It's like God acts upon us and in us through the work of the Holy Spirit and we respond. And today, my prayer and hope is that as you hear this and and consider these passages of Scripture and the call of this passage, that you yourself will actually obey the passage. Because at the end of the day, if you and I do not go into action in terms of, A, cleansing ourselves from all defilement and completing our holiness, if we don't respond, if there's no activity on our part, either we're disobedient or we're dead, But do we cleanse ourselves and do we complete our holiness all in our own strength without any assistance and prior work of God? No. But we cannot think that it's just the work of God and we have nothing to do. I'm going to tell you over and over and over what Paul is telling us. This verse says we are to cleanse ourselves. So an early question of application, and I will come back to this. What did you do this week in order to cleanse yourself from some specific defilement of the flesh or the spirit? What did you do? I hope something. And if you did, you'd be the first to say, God helped me. He moved me. He enabled me. But if I said, who did it? Who cleansed whom? You wouldn't say, God cleansed me and I had nothing to do or no involvement. Not if you understand this text. So there's initial sanctification, the work of God alone. There's progressive sanctification. It's a synergistic work of God and us. And then there is completed or final sanctification. And that's the work of God, too. Because the moment we die, we come into our presence, into his presence. Our souls are made perfect. Or if he, Jesus comes back, we will suddenly be made like him. That's what John says in one of his brief epistles. So there's my little theology on sanctification. I just wanted you to see the big picture. Because this verse that we're looking at is only looking at one part of this, this whole doctrine of sanctification. This isn't looking at our initial conversion. This isn't looking at what's going to happen to us when we die. This is looking at what's going on to us today. I guess today's the second day of April, 2017. This passage is about now. This passage is about now until the day you die. So... There's that synergism. Now, just as a proof of how these things are to work together, I want you to turn to another passage, and we're not going to be looking at a whole lot more, but would you go over to Philippians? You really just, you really must see this. And I know this is a familiar passage, but in terms of the argument I'm making, I want you to appreciate what Paul is saying here in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. <clears throat> It's actually um, chapter 2. I'm sorry, I said chapter 1, so just go over one more. Chapter 2. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Okay, I really want you to obey what I'm about to tell you. What is it, Paul? Here it is. 
my beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. By the way, he didn't say work up your salvation. He didn't say work for your salvation. He said work out. Let's see the outworking of you got some issues there in Philippi. There's some division going on. You're saved. I want to see salvation in operation here. You work out your own salvation and take it very seriously. Do this in fear and trembling. This is serious business. It isn't optional. Work it out. But then for their encouragement, he quickly adds these words. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do and to work for his good pleasure. It's a gospel encouragement. He doesn't leave us with the hopeless thought that I've got to do this all in the strength of myself. I don't have that strength. I can't do that. And Paul says, no. But you have to know what your responsibility is. And you can do this in the strength and the grace of God. Your duty is to work out. God's duty is to work in. And if you want to get the order straight, you work out because he works in. God works in, and the evidence that he's working in is that you work out. If that's not synergism, what is synergism? By the way, sinner is S-Y-N-N-E-R. If that's not synergistic, two parties working together to accomplish one goal, tell me what it is. And God gets the glory because he's the one who initiates it. He's the one who works in. We can't do it without him. But the emphasis of this passage and the emphasis of 2 Corinthians 7, 1 is that we have some things we must do. We must cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. We must complete holiness in the fear of God. And in this passage, we must work out ourselves. So that, that's the end of the of my theology. I hope that's helpful. So uh, I'm not going to spend proportionally that much time on the rest of these main points. In fact, I only have two main points. Here they are. I want you to see just two things, because I think basically that's what's in the text, are two things. I want you to see what our duty is, and I want you to see what our motives are. Duty and motives. I'm glad that God added through Paul the motives. And just before I do that, though, would you be blessed with me to notice Paul's affection? He says, since we have these promises, beloved, beloved. Now, he wasn't just trying to be tactful. But do you know what church this was? (laughs) Do you know what he said to them in his first epistle? These people were driving him crazy. These people were breaking his heart. These people were discouraging him. But he didn't get fed up with them because he's a true pastor. And he loves all of his people, even the difficult ones. And he loves this church, and he loves the individuals who make it up. And with no pretense whatsoever, he says, beloved. That's beautiful. That speaks to me as a pastor. The second thing I would have you to observe is the usage of the word us. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us. Who's the us? Who's the us? Oh, that's Paul and them. That's Paul. Paul, you mean you? The holy apostle used of God to write scripture? The man who had those extraordinary personal visions and experiences with the risen Savior, you, you have to cleanse yourself still? Look how long you've been a Christian. You you have to contribute to the completion of your holiness? Yes. Yes. I'm in this with you. So that's encouraging. He loves his readers, and he's a humble man. So now what, are, what, are, are, what is our duty? 
Well, the duty is twofold, but I'm still calling it a duty. You, you already know what it is, because how many times have I repeated it? I've probably repeated it five or six times already today. I think it might be helpful, though, if you see one of them as sort of a negative duty and one of us as sort of a positive duty. And if I said to you, which one do you think is the negative one, I think you would all say, well, it would be uh, cleansing ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, and you'd be absolutely right. And I said, well, what one do you think is the, maybe the more positive duty? You'd say, oh, I think that's probably completing our holiness. That's, that seems like a more positive pursuit. So just looking at our duty under those two headings for a moment, we're to cleanse ourselves. And notice, here's another key word, from every, every. So a while ago I asked you, what did you do this week to cleanse yourself from defilement? I should have said, what did you do this week to cleanse yourself from every defilement of flesh and spirit? Did you even make a list? Do you even know? Do I even know what my defilements? Do we even think self-consciously about our defilements? But Paul is saying through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that this is a universal work. It's not just body and flesh and spirit, you know, body and soul or mind. It's every, every defilement in either of those two categories. So let's just think about body for a moment. What's defilement of body? Are we supposed to hate our bodies? No. They're sacred because God created them. But you know what? Our bodies become defiled by sin because we sin with and through our bodies. Just go over, please, to Romans. That would be back. Just a couple of books to Romans. And just notice, this is an, this is an important passage here in chapter 6, verses 12. Through 14, Romans 6, 12 through 14. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies. What's he talking about? Bodies or spirit? Bodies. To make you obey their passions. Bodies have passions? Yeah, bodies have passions. Do not present your members. Members, what's that? Body parts. Your brain is actually a member. It's an organ. Your eyes are a member. Your mouth, your tongue is a member. Your hands are members. Your sexual organs are members. Your feet are members. They take you places. And so he says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present your members to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you. He's talking about body parts. And he's telling us that as Christians, we can no longer take the totality of our human bodies and our flesh and use the whole of it or parts of it as instruments of unrighteousness. So when you look at things that you should not be looking at, you are using your eyes as a member of unrighteousness. When you think about things that you should not think about, you are using your brain as a member of unrighteousness. When you imagine things that you should not imagine, you are using your mind. When you touch things or people in places where they should not be touched, you are using your hands as a member of unrighteousness. You've heard enough illustrations. I don't have to go through all of it. And, of course, in our day, sexual organs are perhaps the most defiled instruments of unrighteousness. And so Paul says we need to start there with our bodies. But we don't stop there with our bodies. We must also be concerned about our spirits. Because we're not just flesh and blood. We have minds. We have souls. We have an inner person. 
It's difficult to know exactly what Paul has in mind by this dichotomy, body and spirit. It could be outward, inward. It could be physical, spiritual. But one thing's for sure, it, it gives us a picture of our whole humanity. We sin with our minds. We sin with our souls. We sin with our spirits. We don't just sin with our body. You can sit perfectly still and sin. Not just with your brain, but with your spirit. You know, when you think about the two brothers in the parable of the prodigal son, one brother sinned especially with his body as he gave himself over to debauchery. The other brother sinned with his spirit, one of self-righteousness, lack of compassion, lack of sympathy for his father, lack of love for his own brother who was destroying himself. But we're capable of being both brothers in one. And think about the psalmist David. We know, of course, what was the most horrendous sin outwardly that he committed when he had adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered. And I'm not suggesting that his spirit or mind was not involved at all, but his body was definitely involved. She became pregnant. And it was a sin which defiled his body. But later, toward the end of his life, he does something that didn't really require his body. He actually commanded a census. He wanted to know how many soldiers he really had. And God had forbade that. You weren't supposed to do that because that's the kind of stuff that makes you proud. That's like counting how many members you have or how big your church is or whatever, how much money you have or how much property you own. And God punished him for that severely. That was a sin of the Spirit. So I'm just making the point, brothers and sisters, that we sin with the totality of our humanity, and our sanctification is to deal with the totality of our humanity. And this text makes it clear that we ourselves are responsible to deal with the totality of our humanity. We are supposed to cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. Well, what are we supposed to do positively? Well, we're supposed to bring holiness to completion. That doesn't seem right. I've already said that. That seems like that's the exclusive work of God. Well, there is a completion that only God can finally and ultimately bring a conclusion to. But we are to move toward that. Over here, we're going to experience the whole thing in a perfect, sinless, redeemed humanity on the on the renewed earth, but in the process, we're, we're trying to work toward the completion of that. We want to become more and more and increasingly holy. That's what it's commanding us to do. We're to be striving for this. And we're to do this, I'm sure, through the Word of God, as I've already quoted John seventeen seventeen, Sanctify them <clears throat> through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. We are to do this by seeking to be conformed not only to the Word of God, but to the Son of God Himself, who is the perfect human. So there it is. That's our duty. It's twofold. That's all I'm going to say about it. Now I want to just quickly turn to our motives. Did you see any motives in the text? Well, there's one on the front and there's one on the back. Sort of a front door motive and a back door motive. Since we have these promises, I'm going to explain that in just a moment. Let us cleanse ourselves. There's something that that really should be operative in this pursuit of cleansing ourselves and completing our our holiness. And it is the promises. I'll come right back to that. But how does it end? It says, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord, or as the NIV translates it, out of reverence for God. So, <clears throat> excuse me again, my, our motives are twofold. Uh, first, we, we, we do this in the strength and in the energy and with the encouragement of the gospel and particularly the promises of the gospel. And so he quotes for his readers uh, in verses 16 through 18, Passages from the Old Testament, Leviticus 26, Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 32, Isaiah 52, 11, 
2 Samuel 7.14, and other passages that I could quote for you or give you the references of. These are all coming out of the Old Testament. But let's just read them. You know how many of them there are? Seven promises. Seven. If this were a typical teaching class, I'd pause and give everybody two minutes and see what you could come up with. How many? Okay? Look, I will make my dwelling among them, one, and walk among them, two, and I will be their God, three, and they shall be my people, four. Then comes an exhortation in verse 17, but before it's completed, he says, then I will welcome you, promise five, and I will be a father to you, promise six. And you shall be sons and daughters to me. Promise seven. Now, this is what God promised to his old covenant people. And he kept his promise, but because uh, much of it was conditional, they didn't experience it and realize it. But these promises find their complete and ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because... God makes his dwelling among us now and walks with us and is our God and we are his people and <clears throat> we, we live in him and the, what the temple was symbolically has become us. We are the temple of God, which Paul teaches in other places in, this, in these Corinthian letters. The Garden of Eden was the first temple. God gave them the tabernacles so that he could dwell with his people. He gave them the temple. And then Christ comes and he becomes the temple. But now we are in Christ and he is in us. And we, the church, and every true church is a temple of God. And we look forward to the renewed earth. When it says there will be no temple, for God and the Lamb are the temple. But in the meantime, God walks with us, new covenant believers, in a more precious and intimate way than the old covenant believers ever experienced. This finds its fulfillment in the new covenant. And so when we review and think through how precious it is for God to dwell with us, to walk with us, to be our God, for us to be his people, for him to have welcomed us, for him to be our father, and for us to be his sons and daughters, we should be just so overwhelmed with joy and delight and gratitude and encouragement and hope. This is my God, and all he asked me to do is to keep getting rid of defilement of the flesh and spirit and to continue to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in completing my holiness, I can do this. I should do this. I want to do this. How could anybody receive the blessing of these promises, finding their richest fulfillment in the New Testament, and be ho-hum about defilement? and lack of conformity to the moral image of Jesus Christ. And the, the fact is, dear brothers and sisters, the ability to do these two things that we are commanded to do was purchased by our Savior. And the power is provided by the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We can actually cleanse ourselves we can actually complete our holiness by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, which has been promised to us. But, dear ones, again, the point of this text is we must cleanse ourselves. Of course not in our own strength. But this passage isn't emphasizing the strength we get from God. This passage, let's let this passage fall on our hearts and consciences with the weight that it deserves to fall upon us with. This passage is talking to us and telling us what we must do. But I'm simply reminding you because of the broader context that we can do this. 
And we ought to do this. And we have every reason to believe we can succeed in doing this because of this promise-making, keeping God who has become for us our everything. We can do it. And by the way, why would Paul tell us to cleanse ourselves if it really were impossible? Why would Paul really tell us to complete our holiness if it really wasn't possible? So as you go out today, I hope with a an enlightened mind and a and a determined conscience, as you go out those doors, believe with all of your heart that you can, not only that you must, but that you can cleanse yourself from every defilement. Okay, application. I just have one question, basically. I'll make some comments about it, but I just have one question. It's one that I asked toward the front end of this message. What are you doing, what am I doing, on a daily basis to actually cleanse yourself from every defilement of body and spirit? What are you actually doing on a daily basis to complete your holiness? If your life depended on it, could you write down on a piece of paper two or three or four areas of defilement of your flesh or of your spirit that you've been trying to assault and that you've been trying to cleanse yourself from? And dear brothers and sisters, if we can't come up with anything, that's pretty sad. That's pretty sad. Either we're very indolent and we desperately need this message or we're not converted. I know one thing. I haven't been aggressive and self-conscious and deliberate in trying to cleanse myself from every defilement. It's a little bit like saying, did you pray this morning? You said yes. And I said, what did you pray about? And you said, I don't remember. Well, how much did you want it? When we can't even remember what we prayed about. So I'm trying to probe our consciences. We need to be very deliberate about this. And yes, It wouldn't be legalistic for you to go home and write down a list and get the help of your wife or your husband or your children or your parents or your dearest friend to say, do you see defilements in my flesh or in my spirit? But certainly get on your knees before God and ask the Holy Spirit to show you what those defilements are so that you can roll up your sleeves and say, I'm going to be done with that. I'm going to cleanse myself from this. I'm going to repent of it. I'm going to turn from it. If it's anger, if it's my temper, if it's my language, if it's lust, if it's entertainment, if it's the way I use TV, if it's magazines I'm reading, if it's books I'm reading, if it's movies I'm watching, if it's the way I use my iPhone, if if it's slavery to my laptop, those are the venues that the devil uses and our flesh uses. There are men, no doubt, in this room this morning and certainly in our congregation. Many people are gone today on spring break, and I should have welcomed all the people there as well who are watching online. But I'm certain that there are more men than your pastors would would like to believe, than their wives could possibly believe, who are addicted to pornography. And your eyes and your Spirit, your body and your spirit are defiled. And you just keep defiling it. And you keep defiling it. But you don't have to. You don't have to. By the grace of God. By the grace of this promise-keeping God. And by the way, I didn't speak too much about the fear of the Lord. But those, those are the... So really, what I like, some commentators suggested this. The motives are hope and fear. 
Hope of the gospel, the fear of God, not a servile, slavish fear that I'm just scared to death. God's going to send a bowl of lightning out of heaven. But this awe and reverence for God, you deserve the whole of my being. You've done so much for me. I live in your presence, Coram Deo. I live before the face of God. Oh, help me to be conscious. You're watching me as I watch this. You're listening to me as my tongue says these words. You're observing as I pollute my soul with these things that are so defiling and contrary to your will and your nature. Oh, God, God of promises, help me. Let me put it this way. When's the last time you plucked out a right eye? I was thinking about that this week. Jesus wasn't embarrassed to say, look, if you've got a problem with sin, here's what you need to do about it. He didn't say go home and pray about it and just keep reading good books and biographies and sitting under expositions and it'll finally go away. He said if your right eye causes you to stumble, get a knife out and carve that thing out of its socket. If your right hand causes you to stumble and sin, cut it off. Now, was he using the language of hyperbole? I'm sure he was. But the purpose of the hyperbole is to say to us, be radical. Do something radical about your sin. Be violent in killing your sin. If your life depended on it, and you had to answer this question, again, how would you answer it? What's the last eye you plucked out? What's the last right hand you cut off? And Jesus didn't feel obligated saying, by the way, you can only do that with the help of the Holy Spirit. He just came right out and said, you got it, sin, you better deal with it. And you better deal with it radically right now. That's what this passage is about. What are you doing on a daily basis to become more holy? What am I doing on a daily basis? That's the positive part of this injunction. Prayer, devotion to the Word of God, discipline of reading good books, listening to sermons, developing relationships with godly people with whom we can establish some sense of accountability, who are willing to ask us the hard questions. Are we doing anything like that? How much time do you devote to becoming more holy on a daily basis or on a weekly basis. We're all so busy, aren't we? Yeah. But we can't justify that our time expenditure. I can assure you of that. We can't. We cannot justify our time expenditure because there's nothing more important than this. I was reading one commentator. You've heard of Warren Wearsby who uh, humorously observed on one occasion uh, the song leader getting up at the end of the service and say, uh, turn to him 273, and we're going to sing, Take Time to Be Holy. Uh, we'll just sing verse 1 and verse 4. It's getting late. <laughs> a little bit humorous. But you know what? It does take time to be holy. Do you have any time to be holy? Do you have any time to complete the work of holiness in your life? So do you see the personal responsibility of 2 Corinthians 7.1? It's pressing hard on my conscience, and it has been all week. And I suggest, dear people, that I think sometimes uh, we're all subject to becoming hyper-Calvinists. We have such a strong view of the sovereignty of God that we don't think about our own personal responsibility Maybe another subtle problem is, and I only suggest this, you have to determine, maybe Heritage Baptist Church or individuals in it have become so gospel-saturated, so gospel-saturated, hey, it doesn't make any difference. Christ is my righteousness. I remember seeing a cartoon um, Keith Green cartoon, where he was, I can't walk away, but he was crouching down behind 
an image, and it was Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, with a traditional picture of him folding his hands. And, and he said, behind the thing, he was drinking some whiskey, and he says, it doesn't make any difference how I live, because Christ is my righteousness. We can actually turn the gospel into a, a poison if we don't care about personal responsibility. Now, most of us have come out of backgrounds where perhaps we didn't appreciate the gospel enough and we weren't motivated enough by gospel, and we, we must ever be more. This passage motivates us with gospel. But I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, we can't just hide behind that and say, I don't have any responsibility, particularly to cleanse myself. Jesus is my cleansing. God, the Holy Spirit's assignment is to complete my holiness. We can't do that. So go away from this passage. I'm hopeful. I don't want you to go away, you know, wow, you know, I'm just beat down. Go away from this passage holy, or I mean, uh, uh, hopeful, because what Paul's telling us to do, we can do. Because of the graciousness of this God who promises us all of these things. And may the end product be that everyone here and everyone hearing my voice today, whether it be by a live stream or by some recording later on, that every believer go away from this passage. Forget about me and the sermon. This passage, go away from this passage with a fresh determination to cleanse yourself from every defilement of the flesh and the spirit and to complete your holiness, all in the strength of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, um, Paul's word, not my word, and for its clarity. And we pray that you will help us to be obedient to it. In Jesus' name, amen.